Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Americans like to talk about freedom. We are the land of the free, after all. But we have lost sight of what true freedom is. Freedom rightly understood is not permission to do whatever you want. Freedom rightly understood is ordered liberty. Liberty to live in accord with our design, to pursue what is truly good for us. Uh, Our version of freedom in modern day America is not even constrained by the most basic and incontrovertible facts of biology. How do we view freedom? We think we're free because persons of the same sex can marry. Sunday School by Rich Lusk on January 17th, Lord's Day Service. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for this, uh, this time together, this opportunity to come together uh, here for this uh, Sunday school class and, and worship this morning and then the conference this weekend. Father, we pray that you would show abundant mercy and grace to us, that you would help us to grow into who you want us to be uh, as men and women. Uh, Father, pray that we would glorify you in every way, in everything we do. We thank you for Christ's triumphant uh, conquering of sin and Satan and death through his death and resurrection. Uh, we celebrate him. We rejoice in him. We put all our trust and hope in him. Uh, we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, as a pastor, of course, you know, I preach most every Sunday, and um, I like to give my sermons titles. Uh, and uh, dawned on me a while back that um, I had started using the word crisis in a lot of my sermon titles. And I just noticed this sort of after the fact as an observation. And uh, I thought, well, I wonder what that says, you know, about me or about uh, how things are going in the world around us. And it occurred to me, obviously, we as Christians should always be the most hopeful, most joyful, most triumph, you know, triumphalistic, uh, most optimistic, most confident people around because we always have the gospel. And so we always have good news. We live by that good news no matter what happens. But at the same time, we are the ones who should be the most aware and most honest about uh, the great evils in our fallen world. And I do think we have been inundated by many different crises, and I believe as God's people, we need to acknowledge them and address them. We need to be like the sons of Issachar. Uh, We need to ask God for wisdom that we might understand the times and know what God's new Israel should do. Uh, At the Stronghold Conference tomorrow, I'm going to talk about the crisis in masculinity, which I think is actually at the root of many of the other crises we face. A lot of these other crises we face, if you uh, get behind that crisis, that crisis is on the surface. If you get behind it, you find what we're really dealing with is a crisis in manhood, uh, a failure of men to be the kind of men God made us to be. But this morning, to complement that, uh, I want to talk about the crisis in femininity. I don't want the ladies to feel left out, so we're giving you something here uh, this weekend as well. And so I want to talk about this crisis in femininity, and uh, I'm going to end up using abortion as a test case, uh, but I might be using abortion in a little bit way than, different way than what you're used to, uh, how you're used to thinking about that issue. Of course, it's common to hear accusations of toxic masculinity thrown around against men. We've all heard those charges of toxic masculinity. Sometimes they're fair, probably most of the time they're not. But there is also such a thing as toxic femininity. And this is because our culture is so confused in this area. There is a war between the sexes. 
that in our culture has really been going on for uh, longer than a generation. There's also a war on the sexes, uh, a war on the very concept of sex or gender itself. In our culture, we are confused about men and women, confused about masculinity and femininity. We are confused about sex and marriage. We have departed from God's creation design. And our society has and will continue to pay a high price for that. Whenever you rebel against God's creation, creation fights back. And ultimately, creation wins. If you rebel against the created order, rebel against the way God made you, there will be consequences. And we're starting to see some of those. Americans like to talk about freedom. We are the land of the free, after all. But we have lost sight of what true freedom is. Freedom rightly understood is not permission to do whatever you want. Freedom rightly understood is ordered liberty. Liberty to live in accord with our design, to pursue what is truly good for us. When Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death, this is what he meant by liberty. Not permission to do whatever I want, but ordered liberty. Uh, liberty to, to fulfill God's law in my life. But how do Americans today understand freedom? When Americans today talk about freedom, uh, what do we mean? Well, in our culture, uh, whatever conception of freedom we have, it's certainly not undergirded by some concept of divine design, uh, where the is, the, the creational design, would give rise to an ought, how we ought to live. Uh, our version of freedom in modern-day America is not even constrained by the most basic and incontrovertible facts of biology. How do we view freedom? We think we're free because persons of the same sex can marry. And I'll put Mary in scare quotes. It's obviously not a real marriage because that's um, God's institution. It's one man, one woman, one life. We think we're free because if you want doctors to use drugs and surgeries to change you from a man to a woman or vice versa, you can do that, sometimes even at taxpayer expense. If you don't like your sex, you can change it. Now, there's really no such thing as a way to change your sex. You are what God made you. No doctor can make you into the other sex. But still, that's, that's going on in our culture. That's how people think of freedom. We think we're freedom because we have no rules guiding our use of sex, except maybe consent, and even that sometimes is wobbly. Uh, we think we're free because in a lot of the nation, you can smoke pot if you want to. That's freedom in a lot of people's conception. We think we're free because we have 200 channels on cable TV and Netflix to choose from to keep us entertained, distracted, numbed uh, to reality. We think we're free because women can destroy babies in their own wombs if they decide the child is not worth the inconvenience. What we think of freedom isn't freedom at all. In fact, it's slavery. And what women have thought of as women's liberation is really not liberating at all. Gloria Steinem defined feminism this way. She said, a liberated woman has sex before marriage and a job after Sex before marriage and a job after marriage, that's liberation in the uh, idea of the modern woman. In other words, she's liberated from the sex ethic of Scripture so she can have casual sex. She's liberated from uh, having to uh, restrict sex to the covenant of marriage. And she's liberated to disregard her role as a mother and a keeper at home, the kinds of things Paul talks about in Titus chapter 2. She's liberated from Paul's instructions to women there in Titus chapter 2, so she can go out and pursue a career just like a man would, because that's, real me that's where real meaning and significance are found. Now, is that truly liberating for women? Uh, no, actually it is 
enslaving. Feminism has actually made women unhappier. Uh, women are unhappier now than they have been at any point in uh, recorded American history. Uh, women are unhappier because of feminism, because feminism has called them away from their created purpose and role and design. It tries to make women into men. It's not about liberation. It's about imitation. It's about imitating men, uh, following the same life trajectory that typically a man would. Now, feminism has had other effects. It's certainly impacted women. It's also impacted men and boys. It's hurt men and boys. Uh, feminism has waged what's been called a war on boys. And there are a lot of people who have talked about the boy crisis and, and this, this war on boys. Uh, and, and frankly, feminists have, have won that war. Uh, boys in our culture now trail behind girls uh, in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of objective measurements. There are more um, male, there are more females in college and graduate school than males, more females than males in the workforce today. Uh, feminism has emasculated men. And, and here's, again, another irony. Just as feminism, this liberation of women, has not produced great happiness for women, uh, at the same time, uh, this, um, the, the, the influence of feminism on men, you, we can ask what kind of impact has it had. It has produced emasculated men who, quite frankly, are not attractive to the very women who demanded they become this way. These very, the very women who demanded that men become soft and sensitive and emoting have found they actually don't like men like that. They don't want those kind of men. Uh, and this, too, has created a uh, crisis of the sexes in our culture. And frankly, the church has not been immune to this. Uh, churches in our day have largely become beta male factories, uh, churning out nice guys, uh, but guys who lack backbone, guys who lack in masculinity, hence things like the Stronghold Conference. Uh, but we should not think that we have been immune to the impact and influence of feminism in the church. We have not been. Now, it's important to understand where feminism comes from. Feminism is, I think, is best understood as an offshoot of Marxism. Uh, while some, and I'd want to, so let me talk about this for just a minute and help you understand how this works. You know, some people would argue that capitalism is the great enemy of the family, that capitalism has undermined the family. The reality is free markets provided they operate in a moral framework, provided it's that kind of ordered liberty I already talked about, free markets can bring greater prosperity to the family than any other economic system in history. Free markets for free men. But Marxism, and of course it's produced socialism and, and ultimately would, 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 would produce communism, Marxism has always been anti-family and anti-marriage. It wants to replace the family with collectives. Uh, and practically speaking, that means replacing the family with the state. That's how it's always worked out in history. The family gets replaced by the state. And so all of the usual family functions, uh, the, those functions that a family normally would play for its own members, all of those functions get outsourced to Caesar so that men and women alike can become workers, cogs in the industrial machine. How does Marxism work? Marxism gets its traction by analyzing all relationships in terms of oppressor and oppressee. Uh, if you've heard discussions about um, cultural Marxism or critical theory, you've probably heard this kind of thing talked about. 
the reason various forms of, of Marxism, whether classical Marxism or cultural Marxism, can gain influence is because there really is oppression in this fallen world of ours. So they're really latching on to something uh, that, is, that is real. Uh, but Marxism does more than detect oppression where it actually exists. Marxism assumes oppression in many places where it does not actually exist because it assumes that oppression is always present. So again, just to illustrate this, Marxism applied to economics gives you class warfare. And we're seeing this play out in our culture right now. One of the biggest uh, forms of strife in our culture is what you might call class warfare, kind of the elites versus the commoners. Uh, this, this Marxist view uh, pits the lower classes against the upper classes, and it says the lower classes are always oppressed. And so Marxism tells the lower classes, if someone has more than you, they must have gotten it at your expense, and so you ought to rise up against them. You can see how that would appeal to uh, envious people, uh, how that appeals to uh, our sense of envy. Marxism applied to race relations gives you what has become known as critical race theory. In this view, racial majorities are always, always, always guilty of oppressing racial minorities. In America, because whites are the racial majority, white supremacy is just baked into the system. That's why you'll constantly hear about white supremacy and white privilege. It is systemic racism. It's racism you cannot escape. It's always there. So according to critical race theory, the question in any situation is not, is racism present, but rather, how did racism manifest itself in this situation? The question is not whether or not racism is there. It's how did racism manifest itself? Of course it's there. We know it's there. We know that majority races are always oppressing minority races. The only question is how. So, of course, given uh, the, the principles of critical race theory, the races can never be reconciled because racism can never be eradicated. And so critical race theory leads to ever greater divisions as new grievances are discovered or invented, uh, as the case may be. What about Marxism applied to gender relations? This gets us back to fem feminism. When, when Marxism is applied to uh, gender relations, it gives you what we know as feminism, or sometimes this goes by the name of egalitarianism. Uh, in this case, the man is always the oppressor, and the woman is always the oppressee. Man is always seen as the source of woman's problems. That's one of the hallmarks of feminism, is that men get blamed for everything. Uh, the patriarchy, that's the term that's used to describe traditional male headship and marriage and social life. The patriarchy has oppressed women. Uh, marriage is viewed as a patriarchal institution. Uh, so marriage is viewed as intrinsically oppressive, and so therefore marriage must be eliminated. And if you can't eradicate the institution itself, well, then you can do things like change divorce laws so that 50% of your couples will divorce anyway after a few years. That's almost as good as destroying the institution of marriage. Or you can have same-sex couples marriage. That is another way of attacking the institution of marriage and undermining what it's all about. This is how Kate Millett put it, who is one of the, um, you could say, one of the chief architects of uh, feminism back in the 60s and 70s. Kate Millett said, to complete destruction of traditional marriage and the nuclear family is the revolutionary or utopian goal of feminism. 
So in this feminist utopia, uh, traditional marriage and the nuclear family have been completely eradicated. And you can ask, well, okay, has, has that worked? Well, the reality is the nuclear family has been eradicated uh, for millions and millions of Americans. There's really no um, sense in which the nuclear family really exists, especially in a lot of our inner cities, but in a lot of really rural areas as well. Uh, so this, you, this supposedly utopian goal has almost been realized uh, in a lot of ways. If you look at the uh, Black Lives Matter website, I think this has now been taken down, but they had originally as one of their uh, stated tenets, this Marxist and, and feminist goal of eradicating marriage and, uh, and the nuclear family. The struggle for female equality uh, in feminism is likened to the struggle for racial or class equality. And so there are always these obstacles that have to be overcome. Well, again, it's marriage, it's, it's the nuclear family stru structure that has to be overcome. Now, if you press that struggle to its logical end, what do you get? Well, you get some kind of egalitarianism, some kind of androgyny. That's really the goal, where men and women become interchangeable and indistinguishable. All the differences between men and women are flattened out, and so you, you accomplish this goal of an androgynous society. And so ideally, this, this is what a feminist or egalitarian world would look like. 50% of every profession would be filled by men, and 50% of every profession would be filled by women. And so 50% of daycare workers would be male, 50% of elementary school teachers would be male, while 50% of soldiers in combat would be female, 50% of plumbers and car mechanics would be female. And if those things aren't happening, if we aren't moving towards a 50-50 ratio, then obviously misogyny and sexism are the problem. That's really what's standing in the way. The assumption is the only reason we don't have those equal ratios right now is because of oppression, because the patriarchy has brainwashed us. It's not male-female nature. No, don't, 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 don't bring that in. It's not, it's not male-female nature. It's not that men and women are different. It might make different choices or have different interests and, and gravitate towards different fields. No, it's because of social conditioning and social constructs. That's why more men prefer STEM fields, for example, and more women prefer the nurturing professions. That's not nature. Uh, that, those are because of, that's because of social constructs. Of course, there would be no mothers or fathers in this utopian uh, feminist paradise. And, you know, it's really interesting. Just, what, in the last week or two, the House of Representatives has, has taken this step to eliminate all gendered familial language. So you have no mother, no father, uh, you don't have brothers or sisters, you just have spouses or parents or siblings. Uh, all of the language has been neutralized, it's been neutered, essentially. And this is because using um, sex-specific terms like mother or father or brother or sister, uh, that's not inclusive enough, and so therefore it is offensive. It suggests there might be deep differences between men and women in these different roles that they play. In feminism, the family itself is an arbitrary, artificial human construct. It's not grounded in creation or in God's design. No, marriage is rather a human invention to serve the interests of men and to keep women down. And I'm not exaggerating this. I, I, could, I could literally read to you pages upon pages of quotations from feminists in their own words who say exactly these kinds of things and who make many other similar radical claims about reality and about what they want to see 
have it. Actually, a good example of this is the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, who, of course, served on the Supreme Court uh, until she passed away, what I guess back in, uh, I think it was September. Uh, a lot of the things she advocated as far back as the 1970s have come to pass. Some have not. Uh, some of the things she wanted have, have not come to pass, like, for example, she wanted women to register for the draft, just like men. If, if men do it, women should have to do it, too. Uh, she wanted women to be assigned to combat duty at the same rate as men. Uh, but uh, you know, a lot of things that she wanted have happened, or at least have happened in certain places. But consider some of the things that she advocated for. Okay, and remember, this is somebody who served on our Supreme Court. Uh, so again, I already I mentioned women registering for the draft, women in, in the military and even in combat roles. Uh, she wanted prostitution legalized. Uh, she wanted sex-integrated prisons. We can't distinguish between male and female prisons. Uh, she said the traditional family concept of man as breadwinner and wife as homemaker must be eliminated. Uh, she wanted government to provide comprehensive child care uh, basically from birth onwards, so that women would not have to raise their own children and could jump right back into the workforce. Uh, in, in fact, the system that she envisioned would incentivize and subsidize working moms and would punish uh, a woman who is so foolish to stay at home and raise her own children. Uh, in Ginsburg's vision, uh, boys and girls, uh, boys and girls clubs must be sex integrated which is the same as eliminating them. Uh, Single-sex schools and colleges would have to be sex-integrated, same for fraternities and sororities, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. You know, some of these things have been somewhat accomplished. Uh, any organization that further sex stereotypes must be eliminated. Those stereotypes are the great enemy because those stereotypes are, are arbitrary and they're artificial, they're imposed upon us. They don't arise from nature. Uh, in her view. She wanted no-fault no divorce adopted nationally, which again, for all intents and purposes, that has happened. She wanted affirmative action type hiring quotas for women so that women would be proportionally represented in all of these different fields uh, and careers. Uh, she was one of the pioneers of reforming our language to eliminate gender references. What the, what the House of Representatives just adopted uh, is, is something that she advocated for um, a long time ago. Uh, replacing terms like man and woman with person or human, uh, you know, that kind of thing, so that we don't have these gendered terms that we're using. And, and on and on this goes. Um, when she, but this is the thing to recognize. You know, she, she advocated for all of these things, and when she passed away uh, last year, she was celebrated by many, including many in the church. Who wanted to say, well, maybe I just you know, disagreed with her politics, but uh, you know, she was still this wonderful person, did all these things. Uh, no, these are not wonderful. These are, these are incredibly destructive things. Of course, all the early Marxists taught this kind of thing. Um, you, you could say in a lot of ways, Lenin was an early feminist. Uh, Lenin uh, led a working woman movement. This is what he said about it. He said, the working women's movement has for its objective the fight for the economic and social and not merely formal equality of woman. The main task is to draw the women into socially productive labor, to extricate them from domestic slavery, free them of their stultifying and humiliating resignation to the perpetual and exclusive atmosphere of the kitchen and nursery. He said it is a long struggle requiring a radical remaking of both sexual technique, of social technique and of customs, but this struggle will end with a complete triumph of communism. 
He saw feminism as a necessary step along the way to the final triumph of communism. Abraham Kuyper summarized this spirit of revolution this way. He called it modernism. He said, modernism, which denies and abolishes every difference, cannot rest until it has made woman man and man woman. And putting every distinction on a common level kills life by placing it under the ban of uniformity. He said that this, this spirit of modernism, the spirit of revolution that's been released into Western civilization, it, it, it's, it's life-killing. It aims at uniformity, at androgyny, at a kind of sexless society in which women have been made into men and men have been made into women, and you, you can't even tell the difference anymore. We, we've been, you know, we live in a uh, gender-neutral, androgynous society. That's where this is headed. So the bottom line is that feminism undermines femininity. Uh, and it undermines those very institutions that actually protect best the interests of women and children. It attacks men, marriage, and the nuclear family, all in the name of freeing women from patriarchy and their own internalized misogyny. In reality, marriage historically, I mean, obviously there have been abusive marriages and, and there have been times when women have, have, have uh, faced terrible oppression at the hands of men. We, we should not deny that. But Christian marriage, as it's been understood, has actually been a great blessing to women uh, wherever it's been established and maintained as the norm. And of course, it's been a great blessing for children, too, to have a nuclear family, a, a solid, stable family structure. Feminism turns women against their own nature and indeed against their own best interests. Now, one linchpin of the whole feminist system is abortion, so much so that while I know you may have a few um, fringe uh, pro-life feminists, that's extremely rare. Feminism has basically become synonymous with, uh, with being pro-choice or with, the, um, with uh, advocating for abortion. So let's talk about this for just a minute because I think this is a helpful test case. I believe that overall, Christians in the pro-life movement have done a very good job. I think they've done a very good job at the theoretical level and at the practical level. At the theoretical level, uh, I think we have shown definitively from Scripture and from science that the child in the womb is indeed a child, uh, a full human being with all human rights. And so abortion is murder. It is the taking of an innocent life. Of course, the, the sonogram, we've got technology that has helped us to make that case. But Scripture and science agree. There's no question what Scripture teaches. Just read Psalm 139, where David talks about God knitting him together in his mother's womb. All the scientific evidence points the same direction. This child in the womb is a human individual. And while it's dependent on its mother, it has its own DNA, it has its own identity. Uh, it is a person and ought to be protected accordingly. So theoretically, I think we've done a really good job with that, with making that case that the child in the womb is human and that abortion is murder. And practically, I think we've really been quite successful as well. Practically, we've set up crisis pregnancy centers that give women who don't want to kill their babies an alternative. Pro-life uh, crisis pregnancy centers have done a great job educating women uh, about uh, the true nature of the child in the womb. And, of course, you've got uh, millions of Christians who have been involved in adoption and in uh, helping mothers who are in very difficult situations, basically making it possible for them to have their children. 
for that to be a realistic uh, alternative for them. Uh, and the idea that Christians only care about the child in the womb and not the child once it's born, or that we, we only care about the child in the womb and not the mother, that is nothing less than satanic slander. That's just not true. That is a satanic accusation against the church. We do care. We've shown it again and again. No question about that. But I still think we've missed out on something. We've missed dealing with a certain aspect of the abortion issue, and we've missed out on understanding why abortion is so integral to the feminist movement. Again, so much so that being a feminist and being pro-choice are almost one and the same. We have not really dealt head-on with the arguments that, actu that were actually made in favor of abortion you know, back in the 1960s, even before Roe, but then also in the aftermath of Roe. We simply haven't dealt head-on with those arguments because those arguments really have to do with the nature of the woman herself and with her home. We need to understand the Marxist and feminist logic of abortion, what drives abortion, the logic that drives it. It comes out of the things we've seen from feminism and from Marxism. Abortion is integral to the feminist view of sexuality and sexual liberation. And maybe even more importantly, abortion is integral to the feminist view of freedom and equality. And so we have to deal with these notions of freedom and equality. So when you start talking about freedom and equality, those are things that resonate with all Americans. Oh, we're in favor of freedom. We're in favor of equality. Okay, well, then you tie abortion into that, where abortion becomes a necessary aspect of freedom and equality, and what happens? Well, abortion becomes very persuasive to a lot of Americans. So let me put it to you this way. We can never adequately deal with and answer and refute the challenge of abortion until we proclaim and defend the natural, creational role of the woman, the glory of motherhood, and until we show the deep flaws in the feminist view of equality and freedom, and indeed the deep flaws in feminism's view of who a woman is or what a woman is. So we have to deal with these notions of freedom and equality, and we have to deal with the nature of womanhood, the nature of femininity itself. And then we have to ultimately, I think, celebrate womanhood and celebrate femininity, glorify femininity the way Scripture does. Think about how abortion is presented. Abortion is presented as essential to the woman's equality with the man. She cannot be equal to the man unless she has abortion you know, as a sort of tool in her toolbox to, to use to help her uh, achieve and maintain equality. The feminist view is that the woman has been punished by nature as the one who gets pregnant, as the one who has to carry and then nurture the child. And so abortion then is the great equalizer. It's necessary, it's necessary as an option to equalize men and women. So really, nature is the enemy, abortion is the ally. In fact, I would really say this, for fem while feminists will direct a lot of their ire towards men, uh, their real anger is towards God and his creational design. It's, their real anger is simply towards the way God made the world. That's what they're rebelling against. Uh, it, it's, it's motherhood. So in order for men and women to be equal, the woman can't be saddled with pregnancy. That would hold her back. That would limit her, uh, her, her opportunities, opportunities that are there for men. Listen now, this is how uh, Susan Bevan puts it. She is a Republican feminist, okay, Republican who is pro-choice and identifies as a feminist. Listen to what she says. 
A woman's right to control her own body, that's how abortion is described, controlling her own body, never mind the fact that it's actually someone else's body. Okay. A woman's right to control her own body is absolutely central to our success as a civilization. The world's most oppressive regimes, the world's most oppressive regimes target those who would liberate women from the shackles of ignorance or bondage. This includes reproductive bondage, and parallels can be drawn in our own country. Well, who's she talking about? She's talking about pro-life people who want to hold women in bondage by requiring a pregnant woman to actually give birth to the child that has been conceived. That's bondage. That's going to keep us from succeeding as a civilization because it keeps women from having a, a level playing field with men. See, abortion is not only driven by a desire to break the bond between sex and children. That's sometimes how we think of it. Abortion is just sort of a form of, of birth control, and, and it allows the, uh, the, you know, the woman to engage in casual sex uh, if, if, if she wants to. That's part of it. But abortion is also driven by a desire to equalize men and women, and particularly to equalize men and women in the workforce. After all, if women have to carry children, they can't compete with men on a level playing field in the working world. And so to make sure no woman is penalized professionally, she has to have the option to abort an unwanted or untimely child. And then she can weigh her options. Do I want this child or do I want my career? And she can weigh those options and decide. That is the logic of feminism. Again, abortion serves a twisted notion of freedom and equality. It is part of a futile and unnatural attempt to make men and women interchangeable. And that's why we're told abortion is a women's issue. Think about the way abortion works in our society. Abortion is a choice a woman makes that is between her and her doctor. And so the woman, after she is conceived, this is again at the logic of abortion, she gets to decide whether or not to be a mother. He doesn't get to decide whether or not to be a father. Okay, if she does decide to give birth, then he's a father, and he'll, be, he'll have some kind of responsibility for that child, most likely. But she gets to decide whether or not to be a mother. That's up to her. It's between her and her doctor, or just as often between her and her employer. That's how it works. That's how the thinking goes. It's considered a woman's issue, so abstracted from the man. And to oppose abortion is to hate women, is to want to hold them back professionally, it's want to uh, push them down into ignorance, uh, it's, want to, it's, it's, it's a desire to keep them in bondage if you oppose abortion. And, and this is why the flip side of this, abortion is considered empowering. Women can empower themselves by destroying the child in the womb because, well, I've got the power now to continue pursuing this successful career trajectory I'm on. That's how Merle Hoffman put it. She was one of the leading feminists who pushed for, leading ab for legalized abortion back in the 1960s. She, this is how she described it. She said, the act of abortion positions women at their most powerful, and that is why it is so strongly opposed by so many in society. You are opposed to women's empowerment if you oppose abortion. She says in her book on abortion rights, the abortion rights movement, she says, we all knew abortion ended a human life. Okay, get this. Making that case that the child is a human would not dissuade her from abortion. Okay, that, that wouldn't do it. That's not enough. It's not enough to make the case that this is a child, a human being in the womb. She says, we know that. We, we, we knew that already. We all knew abortion ended a human life, but it was worth it. It was worth sacrificing the child to preserve independence 
and career goals. See that? It's all about personal freedom. Women should not be required to let a child get in the way of her dreams and her aspirations. If having this child is going to interfere with her dreams and her aspirations, who are you to say she's got to have it? Men don't get, men don't have that. Men don't have to deal with that. If we want equality between men and women, how can you say she has to have that baby? And so Hoffman's conclusion is abortion is as American as apple pie. Why is abortion so American? Well, it's because it is about freedom and equality. Now, I would say if abortion really is as American as apple pie, there's something deeply wrong with America. Uh, I would say if it's really all about freedom and equality, then we need different conceptions of freedom and equality because we've got the wrong ones. If abortion is necessary to the American dream, then we've got to dream a different dream because that's not the right dream. Uh, another feminist, Mary Elizabeth Williams, put it this way, all life is not equal which is interesting since this is about equality. It's in the name of equality. But anyway, all life is not equal. A fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right in her circumstances should trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity. What a way to describe it. The non-autonomous entity inside her, always. Abortion saves lives, not just medically, but in the roads it allows women to choose to go down in the possibilities it allows them. I would put the life of the mother over the life of the fetus every single time, even if I still must acknowledge that the fetus is indeed a life. It is a life worth sacrificing. Okay? That's the essence of feminism. That's the essence of the pro-choice position. And that's why arguing that the child is a child is not adequate. It's not enough. You have to deal with these notions of freedom and equality. You have to deal with what is the calling of the woman? What is womanhood all about? What is femininity all about? Listen again to what she says. All life is not equal. The child's life is worth sacrificing. She actually says abortion saves lives. We think, oh, abortion ends a life. Abortion stops a beating heart. Well, she says it saves life. She's inverted that. Whose life does it save? It saves the life, or really we could say the lifestyle of the mother who chooses to abort her child. It saves her life, her opportunities, her possibilities, her career. And that's really what it comes down to. It's really that crass. What she means, ironically, when she says abortion saves lives is that it saves a range of choices for the woman, uh, the kinds of choices a man would get to make. It keeps her freedom, her lifestyle, her independence intact, or at least she thinks it does. Uh, mainly, it, it gives her the freedom to reject motherhood and to pursue a career just like a man. It's a kind of freedom through death. But of course, it is a false freedom and an unjust death. If others have to die for you to live the way you wish, if innocent persons have to die for you to live the way you wish, maybe there's something wrong with the way you wish to live. If innocent people have to die to support your way of life, then there's something wrong with the way of life you're choosing. Barack Obama, in 2011, on the anniversary of the Roe decision, said, 
this as he was celebrating that anniversary. Because again, if abortion is about equality and freedom, it's every bit as worth celebrating as the American War for Independence. I mean, that literally is the logic of abortion. It's worth celebrating. It's Independence Day for women. That's what it is. This is what Obama said. On this anniversary, I hope we will recommit ourselves more broadly to ensuring that our daughters have the same rights, freedoms, and opportunities as our sons to fulfill their dreams. This is why abortion is necessary, again, so that our daughters can live just like our sons and not have anything interfere with their dreams, which are not dreams of motherhood, obviously. That would be dumb. But dreams of a career and a corner office with a window view. See, that daughters cannot be penalized just because they have wombs. They have to be equal to our sons, and abortion ensures that equality. On another occasion, and perhaps more famously, uh, Obama said, I've got two daughters, nine years old and six years old. I'm going to teach them, first of all, about values and morals, but if they make a mistake, I don't want them punished with a baby. That, again, is the logic, that having the baby would be punishment and would get in the way of his daughter's dreams and hopes and aspirations for life. Abortion is founded on a version of personal freedom. It's founded on a woman's right to fulfill her dreams, to do anything the boys are doing. It's based on an egalitarian dream of radical individualism, careerism, consumerism, androgyny. Yes, it does require sacrifice, but the dream is so great, the sacrifices, the slaughtered children are worth it. They're worth it for this kind of equality and this kind of freedom. That's the logic. You don't have to sacrifice for your dreams to come true. Your child can be sacrificed in your place. So again, see, abortion is part of this larger Marxist feminist program to bring about equality, uh, to do away with family and marriage, to promote sexual licentiousness, to turn every member of society into a worker bee, a cog in the corporate machine. A couple things here, just to wrap this up. Uh, if, if we understand all of this, uh, how does this change the way we deal with abortion? Let me speak real briefly to one and then a little bit more uh, in a little more detail uh, to the other. One thing I ought to do is change how we pray about this issue. One thing that I noticed, and this was, this was years ago, but I noticed that you know, people in my congregation and, and myself included, we would pray that God would stop abortion. And in our prayers, we would say, you know, God, stop this senseless bloodshed, this slaughter of the innocent, stop abortion. And that's a good way to pray. We ought to continue praying that. But one thing I started doing a few years ago, and I think it's catching on uh, with folks, is to pray more comprehensively. Pray for a world and a culture that would make abortion unthinkable. Don't just pray that that we would stop slaughtering the innocent in the womb. Pray that the marriage bed would be honored, as we read about in Hebrews 13, that God's design for, for sex and for family would be honored, that we would have strong marriages, uh, and, and, and pray that men and women would embrace the roles that God has centrally called them to. Pray for those kinds of things, because abortion's not going away just because we convince people that it is a life. That's not going to end it. What's going to end it is when men and women once again embrace their proper roles. That really leads me to the second thing. We've got to address this warped view of feminism, this mistaken view of freedom and equality, but along with that, and especially perhaps, this mistaken view of women and the woman's role and her nature. 
And I think that, you know, the best answer to feminism is, is not to just focus on what women cannot do. You know, say, for example, that women cannot be pastors. And that's a clear prohibition set down in 1 Timothy 2 and other places in Scripture. So we, 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 do, we do talk about that. But what we especially need to do, I think, is appropriately glorify the things that are at the center of the woman's calling. Not that the woman can't do a lot of other things with her life and in different seasons of her life, but celebrate that feminine energy, that feminine glory, celebrate those feminine roles that women are actually called to play or celebrated for playing in Scripture. Think about what we've got going on in our culture today, the things that uh, are celebrated for women. Think about superhero movies, okay? In a superhero movie today, you will have the exact same plot line. Everything's exactly the same as it used to be. The only difference is now instead of a hero, you have a heroine. And so now instead of a male body doing all these great exploits to defeat the bad guys with his bare hands, now you've got a woman doing it. Now, it, they're already unrealistic. Maybe it's slightly more unrealistic to see, you know, uh, this, this, you know, this woman who used to, you know, obviously doesn't have the natural strength that a man would have doing all these incredible things, okay? But the, the, the real issue there, the real issue is that a woman is being forced into a masculine mold as if, the only things we're celebrating are things that men have traditionally done. And so if women want to be celebrated, they've got to do those things that men have traditionally done. We need, we need to tell different stories. We need to tell stories that celebrate women as women, that celebrate femininity, that celebrate uh, those feminine roles, particularly the feminine role in the family, that celebrate uh, motherhood and, and things related to it. That, that, that do the kind of thing that we find in Proverbs 31, where the woman is celebrated for being womanly. She's celebrated as a wife and as a mother. A woman's center of gravity, again, Titus 2, a woman's center of gravity will always be her husband and her children. That's what Paul's getting at in Titus chapter 2. The woman's roles are indeed glorious, and when she embraces them, there is true power. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, the woman is the glory of the man. There's something glorious about the woman. Uh, Proverbs says an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Crowns are glorious. The Bible honors women again and again based not on how much they can imitate men, but based on how faithfully they live out and cultivate their God-given, God-designed femininity. Whereas feminism judges women according to the man's standard, God does not. He judges women according to their own feminine standard. And this shouldn't be that hard. You know, our culture has it backwards when it comes to women, as G.K. Chesterton pointed out a hundred years ago. Feminism says that if a woman teaches her own kids or cooks for her husband, she is wasting her potential. But if she does those things for complete strangers, then suddenly it becomes valuable. If she submits to her husband, it's demeaning. But if she submits to her boss, that's empowering. If she is financially dependent on her husband, she is a fool. But if she's financially dependent on the state, well, that's just fine. Nobody's going to criticize that. Okay, that's all Marxism. You know, work only has value if it's paid, according to Marxism. It can't have value for its own sake. Uh, can't have value for its own sake if it just serves her family and her God. Uh, and that's why some feminists actually, this has been proposed, some feminists actually would like to outlaw the very possibility of a stay-at-home mother. We need to understand it's feminism, not patriarchy, that damages women, that hurts women the most. Feminism mocks marriage, it mocks motherhood, it mocks homemaking. It is an insult to true 
femininity. I would say to the women here, and, and, and if you're a parent with, you know, if you're a father or mother with a daughter, this is what you need to, to do with your daughter. You, you, you need help her understand. It's feminism versus femininity. Choose femininity. That's the battle. That's the battle in the culture. Uh, I don't think Paul in, in Titus 2, when he calls women to homemaking, is saying women can't do things outside of home or family. Uh, my wife went back to work as a teacher uh, outside the home once our kids got older. I think that's perfectly fine. Uh, I've got two girls and two daughters in college right now. But I do think Paul is saying, when he says that women are to be instructed in homemaking, I do think he's saying this is her center, this is her core, this is her anchor, this is the place where her femininity in all its glory and beauty can be most fully realized, which serves not only the good of her family, but the good of the kingdom of God and the good of society as a whole. All right, let me pray for us, and uh, we're done. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this day and time together. We pray for your blessings on us all. Give us grace and mercy to fulfill the design you have granted to us uh, that we might glorify you and we might show the world what true freedom looks like. True freedom is found in living according to your word and your will. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.